You're listening to audio provided by Valleydale Church. To find more resources or to donate to this ministry, please check out valleydale.org. But I just want to thank the committee uh, for last week. Uh, They worked hard, they worked long, and they did such an excellent job. So from me to you, thank you so much for leading us in last week. Um, Yeah, give, give them a hand. That's okay. And um, take your Bibles and look with me at Romans chapter 12. Now, we're going to be in Romans for a little while, from 12 through about 15, at least up till Christmas. And then after Christmas, I'm going to start in the, uh, um, the epistle to the Ephesians. I really kind of I, I really will lead you there to Ephesians as we're going to look, look at hopeful and devoted to you, not hopelessly devoted to you. This isn't Sandy singing to Danny. This is hopeful and devoted. Um, uh, Joe keeps walking around the church singing hopelessly devoted to you. And uh, I can't get that crazy thing out of my head now. It's in there. Uh, during World War II, there was a Polish priest by the name of Maximilian um, Kolbe who was hiding Jews from the Germans and he was giving aid to the Polish resistance fighters. And uh, of course, the Germans found out about it. They arrested him. This is the guy right there. I doubt if you've ever even heard his name. Uh, They sent him off to what was one of the most uh, brutal of the concentration camps. Uh, They sent him to Auschwitz. And at Auschwitz, the commandant there had a specific way that if anyone ever tried to escape, he had a specific uh, type of punishment that he would do to ensure that pressure was brought on people not to attempt to escape. But in his bunkhouse, there was a man who did escape. He got away. It infuriated uh, the Germans And uh, they called all of the men out of that bunkhouse. And what they would do is they would go down the line and count out 10 men. And they would take those 10 men. They would throw them in a pit that was dug in the middle of the concentration camp. And they would refuse to give them water and food until they died. Now, the reason it was there in the midst of the camp was because they wanted every other prisoner to hear what it sounded like for men to starve to death. Uh, you take food away from a, from a person and you take water away from a person and it will drive them mad a- a- after a certain point. And so they wanted the screeches and the screams and the cries uh, to penetrate everyone else at Auschwitz so that they would know there's no hope. I mean, don't, don't even try to escape from here or people will suffer because of what you've done. Well, And this one that escaped out of the bunkhouse that uh, Maximilian was in, they lined them all up. The commandant went down the row and he got to number 10 and he tapped this guy who immediately fell on his face. He just began to weep. He began to plead. He said, I've got a wife. I have children. Please don't take that away from me. Please. They won't live. They won't be able to uh, survive without me. And uh, I can't leave them. I can't bear the thought of what would happen to them. And so while he was pleading for his life, Maximilian Kobe stepped out and said, I'll die for that man. 
Well, it infuriated the commandant. It embarrassed him as well. And so the only thing he could do was say, well, if you want to die, you can die too. So he allowed Maximilian to take the man's place. They took him, they threw him into the pit, and uh, within a few days, men started to die. And as they died, Maximilian would simply hold them, encourage them, speak scripture over them, and give them some kind of encouragement. And uh, as the story would have it, Maximilian was the last one uh, alive. They came in to take out all of the bodies, to remove the bodies. They found Maximilian still alive, and they said, we're not going to wait for you to die. We're going to kill you. And so they took a syringe, and they filled it with carbolic acid. And as they went to inject him with it, he just simply lifted up his arm and said, here it is. And he died. Now, the man that he died for, the man whose place he took, survived Auschwitz, survived World War II, went back home, but his life was so dark and depressing. He lived in such darkness and in such depression because he would never get over the fact that a man had died for him. And in the midst of his sadness and his depression, a friend of his finally came to him and said, you know, you would think that you would be grateful, that you would be thankful. You would think that you would spend the rest of your life not in depression, but in thankfulness that someone took your place. He said, you would think that you would spend the rest of your life letting the rest of the world know what that man did for you. And as a Catholic, he said, you would think that you would do everything you could to see him made a saint. Well, that man's life turned around, and that's exactly what he did. And in 1981 or 82, this man, Maximilian Kobe, uh, was, uh, became a saint. He was canonized in the Roman church. Now, I don't believe uh, in that. I don't believe in priests. I don't believe in all of the things that come out of Romanism, but I do believe this. That's the way a Christian ought to live. A Christian ought to so live his or her life in such thanksgiving that they are willing to do anything, even sacrifice themselves for the glory of God. Now, take your Bibles and look with me at Romans chapter 12, verse 1, because that's exactly what Paul is talking about. But now, he's not talking about your dying. So let me get that straight. Don't, I don't want anybody to go out of here thinking I'm calling you. To, I'm, I'm, I'm not, who's the guy that gave him Kool-Aid? I'm not trying to give you some Kool-Aid. I want to talk to you about life, not death, okay? That's what Paul's talking about. He's talking about life. What he's saying here is this. He comes to this portion of the book of Romans, and he's really going to talk about our maturing and not wasting our Christian life. People can waste their Christian life by living in immaturity. Paul talks about his chief aim uh, in the church is to help people mature in the things of God. In fact, if you've got your Bibles and you put your finger in Romans 12, if you look over to Colossians chapter 1, I want you to listen because Paul talks about this being one of the major things that he is to do in the church. 
He comes in verse 28 of Colossians 1, and he says, we proclaim him, admonishing every man, teaching every man with all wisdom, so that we may present every man complete. Now, the word complete there literally is the word teleos, and it means to be mature, to be perfect. He says, my desire is to so proclaim Jesus Christ and admonish every man in Christ and teach every man in Christ so that I may present to Christ every man complete in him. That is mature in him. Now, Paul had an issue in a number of churches with immaturity. One of them happened to be the church at Corinth. If you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, um, you see that. Paul writes and he says, 1 Corinthians 3, 1, and I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual men, but as to men of flesh, as to infants in Christ. I had to give you milk to drink, not solid food, for you were not able uh, to receive it. Indeed, even now you're not able. He says, you're, you're not growing spiritually. You're spiritual babes. The writer of Hebrews had the same issue over in Hebrews chapter 5. Uh, to those uh, Hebrews that he was writing to, he comes and he says this, Hebrews 5 verse 12, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again of someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God. You've not come to need milk and not, you've come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness. He's an infant. But solid food is for the mature who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. So Paul call, comes and he says, listen, this, this is my task in the church. And, and I want to tell you, I, I'm at a place, when I came to you, I, I came to you at a place in my life where I had done all that I could to put nickels and noses in the church. You know what I'm talking about? People and money in the church. When I came to you, I, I came to you and I was somewhat liberated from that. And I have to tell you, it is a liberating thing. I'm not here to see how many numbers we can get in the church. In this late last quarter of my life and ministry, what I want to do is grow you. Not grow the numbers, but grow you. I feel that, I sense that, that the greatest thing that I can do is to so help you move from where you are now to where you can be in Jesus Christ. So that you look back a year from now and you see, I have progressed. I have grown. I have stepped out and walked a little deeper in the things of God. I've gotten over some attitudes. I've gotten over some of the past. I've gotten over some of the hurt. I've gotten beyond some of the injury. And I have begun to live the way God has called me as a Christian to live. I want to grow the church spiritually. The other stuff, it'll take care of itself, but it's really not on my radar. I'm not running from anything. I'm running from stuff. If you want to know the truth, I'm running from it. Uh, I'm not running for anything. So that's why I want to bring you to this and why next year we're going to look at this whole thing about devotedness in our lives. But I want you to look at Paul as he comes and he talks about how do we grow in maturity? How do we grow in the things of God? How can I become mature? 
Now, let me tell you something about Romans just by way of teaching you a little something. The, Romans can be divided into three sections. The first eight chapters of Romans, Paul is giving, he's giving doctrine. And really, Romans is the high watermark of the New Testament, in all honesty. It is the great theological letter. And in those first eight chapters, he's dealing with, with issues like justification, Christology, sanctification, um, all, of, all the things that deal with being saved and uh, growing in Jesus Christ. The first eight chapters really deal with the righteousness of Christ. He talks a good deal about the law. And Paul wants you to know you're not saved by the law. You're not saved by all the things you keep and do. You are saved by the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Now, you come to chapters 9, 10, and 11, boy, you really come to some deep water there. Um, and at this point in my life, I don't know that I'm even ready to preach chapters 9, 10, and 11. So I get tickled when 25-year-olds think that they can. No, I do. I do. I'm sorry. But I do. I don't know that I, it's, that's tough sledding in there. It is a national statement. It is a statement about the righteousness of God toward the Jew. Um, if we are the Gentiles, and we're, we're, whoever you are, if you're not a Jew, you're a Gentile. The world for them was just divided into two parts. You were either descended of Abraham or you were the kunos, you were the dogs who were intended to fuel the fire of hell. There you go. Feel good? Um, so Paul comes in, in these three chapters and he says, no, we, we, we Gentiles are the wild a limb that's grafted into the olive tree. Uh, we've been grafted into the body of Christ. Uh, but if God is that concerned about the Gentiles, then what is he going to do about these Jews who've rejected Christ? And the bottom line in that is God has a plan for Israel. God is going to save Israel at some point in time. They will not be saved apart from belief in Jesus Christ, however. So you've got those three chapters that are difficult to walk through. Then you get to chapter 12 through 16, and what you've got there now is you've got all this application. So Paul now begins to talk about, let's talk about your life and your maturity level. And so he comes in verse 1. If you look at this verse, he's going to talk about maturity in, in the whole process of relationship. Where does maturity show up or where does maturity not show up? better than in relationship. You can look at how we deal with each other and you can tell the level of spiritual maturity. So he starts with our relationship with God. Verse two, and I, and I won't even get to verse two today, is our relationship with ourselves. And then from three on, you're gonna look at our relationship with other brothers and sisters, our relationship with enemies, those that are our enemies, our relationship to the government, our relationship to, uh, uh, to our employee, employer, our relationship to um, the lost world. He's going to look at all of that. And by the way, while I'm trying to teach you a little something here, let me tell you, notice through this, Paul is really laying some foundation for a doctrine that most of us are very unfamiliar with, and it's called the priesthood of the believer. Now, in this first verse, he's going to talk about us, and he's going to talk about us in a priestly way. So we've just left Exodus. We ought to understand this stuff now when Paul talks to us uh, about uh, uh, 
service, our service, and about us presenting uh, like we present a sacrifice. So let's pick it up. I've only got one point for you this morning, and it's this. A life of maturity and a life that has meaning begins with a deep expression of devotion. Now listen to what he does, and and folks, all I'm going to do is go through verse 1. He comes and he says, therefore, I urge you. Now, understand this about the Christian life, because you can write this over the top of this verse. In Christianity, we do not come to Christ in order to get stuff from God. We come to God through Christ in order that we might present ourselves to God. Christianity is not a religion of give me, give me, give me. This is not Aladdin's lamp, and we rub it, rub it, rub it, and say the right words, and we get everything we want. The Christian life is what he's going to talk about here. It is giving myself completely to God. So he comes and he says, I urge you. Now, that's an appeal. Um, That's not a command. It's not uh, an imperative. It is an appeal. I'm urging you. It's a word that you know very well, in the, even in the Greek, because I've used it so many times in the last five years, you ought to be able to spell it in Greek. It's the word parakaleo. Um, in the verb, in the noun uh, sense, it is the word paraclete, which is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes alongside of us to help us, to encourage us, uh, to lift us, to inspire us. Uh, But when you use it as a verb, it means to encourage. If you've got the King James, it means beseech. The King James translates it, beseech. I beseech you, I urge you, I encourage you. I'm cheering for you, we would say. He says, I'm urging you. So he comes and he, he wants you to know that he is here. He's putting his arm around you. And he says, I'm urging you to do something. Well, the something is going to be to present our bodies as a living sacrifice. But now hold on. We're not there yet. Look at the motivation for this. The appeal, I urge you, but here comes the motivation. It is by the mercies of God. Do you notice that? It's plural. It's not singular. It's not by the mercy of God. It's by the mercies of God. Can you stand up and count all your many blessings? They're too many to count. You can rattle them off from here to eternity, but let me tell you, the mercies of God never fail. Never fail. The mercies of God never run out. The mercies of God are continuous. They are constant We are experiencing them every single moment of every single day. That should create the deep devotion in our life in order to do the rest of what he's saying right here. So he comes and he says, therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God. Now, I've not dealt with the therefore, so I want to deal with it now. Whenever you come to a therefore, you always ask, What's it there for? What's the therefore, therefore? It always points you to the past. It always points you to what has just been said. So you've got to look back to the end of Romans chapter 11, and it begins, that little pericope begins in verse 33. 
and he's going to talk about the riches and the wisdom uh, and the knowledge of God. He says, oh, the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. It's rich beyond anything that you can imagine. How unsearchable are his judgment. How unfathomable his ways. You can't, you can't begin to, 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 dwell, to, to, to delve into the depths of the judgments of God. His ways, the way God operates and works, are beyond our imagination. That's what he's talking about. And he comes and he says then this, as he quotes the Old Testament, for who has known the mind of the Lord? Now, let me tell you, this is Hebrew humor. Y'all aren't laughing, but it's Hebrew humor. Uh, it's not funny to us, but to the Jews, it would be funny. Who has known the mind of, uh, of the Lord? Well, that's a joke. Who could know it? Ha, ha, ha. There's nobody that could do that. Who became his counselor? That is, who walked in and said to God, lie down on this fainting couch, and I'll sit here and ask you about your childhood? Well, that's a joke. Nobody counsels God. God's never had a counselor. Or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? What he's saying right there is this. Whoever walked up to God and said, well, how much you need today, Lord? Uh, let me peel off a couple here, give to you because you look like you need some money, and then you can pay me back later. What a joke. God owns it all. God has it all. God made it all, right? So the fact of the matter is everything you've got is God's that he gave to you. He is not obligated to us. We have great obligation to him. What I've got on, the air I breathe, the car I ride in, the house I live in, the food I eat, everything I have, God has given to me. Now, listen to what Paul says next in verse 36. For from him, through him, to him are all things. To him be the glory. Now, no, look, look, to him be the glory forever. Amen. Paul amens himself. I told y'all it was biblical. It's New Testament. It's Pauline right here. He amens himself, and that's not the only place Paul does that. So Paul says, because, because of all, therefore, because of all of that, I'm urging you, just as I'm urging you, I want to take you deeper into the things of God. So I'm urging you by the mercies. What should motivate you? By the mercies of God. All the mercy that he's given to you, that he's showered on you, that he has baptized you in, he comes and he says, present. Now, let me just stop with that. Present. He says, you are to present something to God. Now, you know what it is because this is one of the most recognized verses in all the word of God. Uh, therefore, Brethren, I urge you by the mercies of God to present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is, the King James says, your reasonable service or your service of worship. Um, present. He's telling us we are to present ourselves. Now, it's interesting, that word present there is used in Luke chapter 2, and if I'm not mistaken, it's verse 22. But it's Luke chapter 2 where Joseph and Mary bring the baby Jesus to the temple for him to be presented on the eighth day. 
Same word. It's what you'll read when you get to John chapter 18 and Jesus is in the garden praying and the guards come being led by Judas. And as they get there, Jesus looks at them and he presents himself to them. He says, who are you looking for? And they say to him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus says, I am he. And they all run and fall backwards. Then they get up, straighten up. An army comes back <laughs> to arrest one man. And he says, well, let me, let me ask you guys again. Who are you guys looking for? Jesus of Nazareth. He says, I've already told you, I am he. And so there, he presents himself to them. When uh, Christ died, when the word of God tells us that Christ was slain from the foundation of the earth, listen, God the Son presented himself to God the Father and said, I will go and pay the price of sin for this creation that we create. He presents himself. You, you have to present yourself from time to time. I, I've had to present myself before judges before. I've had to present myself. I had to, before I, I, I was able to graduate this last time, uh, with my uh, with my degree, uh, I had written everything. I had written my dissertation. All of it was bound. All of it was together. But I had to present myself to four professors, and so they had marked off three hours. And I walked into a room at Southwestern, and for the next two and a half hours, they didn't make me stay three. But for two and a half hours, I presented myself to them. Uh, they had the right to ask me anything. They asked me questions about. Um, um, a semicolon in the middle of a footnote on page uh, 136 uh, that needed to be changed. They asked me something about citing a reference in the bibliography that didn't appear to be quite Kate Turabian, you know, style number nine. Uh, they had the, the right to ask me about things like, well, tell us what is the hermeneutical foundation for the Anabaptists. They could ask me anything. They could ask me about my past educational experience. They could ask me anything about what they had taught me in class. They could ask me about anything they wanted to. And I had to answer that. Why? Because I had gone in and had presented myself to them. That's what he's saying right here. Now, let me show you two things about that presentation. One, it's personal. You present yourself to who? To God. Well, God is the one who made me. God is the one who created me. God created me. He created my body. He created me physiologically. He created me mentally. He created your mind. God created you as a living spirit. He created you as a living soul. He created everything about you. He created you and your eyes, your ears, your hands, your feet, your legs, your nose, everything in the words of that great old African-American singer for Billy Graham, Ethel Waters, God created me and God don't make no junk. That's you. God didn't make you junk. God created you. And just as he looked at Adam when he created Adam and he said, and this is very good, he's looked at you and said, this is very good. God has made you. God has created you. 
Now, how do I sin? I sin with what God has created. I sin with my hands. I sin with my eyes. I sin with my ears. I sin with my tongue. I sin with my feet. I sin with every part of me. I sin with my thoughts. I sin with all of these things. And so I have to come before him and I have to come to him and ask for forgiveness for using this in sin. But Paul is saying we come and we present ourselves this personal sacrifice. But not just personal, but purposeful. So I come to him and I have sinned in this body. But listen, let me tell you, I come to him and he forgives me all my sin. Now the purpose comes in. Look at Romans chapter 6. To just one little verse Just a few pages back, Romans 6, and listen to what Paul says right there. He comes and he says this. Let me pick it up in verse 11 to get to the verse. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin. We as Christians, you know, maybe I should have started at the first of Romans. This is so good right here. But we are alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, because of that, don't let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. Now, here's where I want you to be. Verse 13, don't go on presenting. That's what Paul's talking about in chapter 12, verse 1. Presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. But present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. Now, what I want to point out to you is this. Twice he uses the word present. Same thing that he's saying over here to present your bodies living and wholly acceptable to God. So here he's using the same thing. Present the members of your body, not to sin as instruments. He uses that word twice, instruments. Do you know what it is in the Greek? Weapons. The word is translated as weapons. So Paul says, do not go on presenting the members of your body Uh, to sin as weapons in the hands of the devil against the kingdom of God. Do you understand that when when you sin, when I sin, when I sin, what I do is I am saying to the devil, here is my body, you take it, use it as a weapon to fight against the kingdom of God. You said, now preacher, I've never done that. Well, listen, you may never have intentionally done that, but that's what you're doing. And you said, where do you get that? I just read it to you. In chapter 6, back here, in verse 13, that's don't go on presenting the members of your body to sin as weapons of unrighteousness. But we can do this. This is what we can do. I can come to Jesus Christ and present myself to him as a weapon in his hands to be used against the kingdom of darkness. Now that I like. The other I hate. And I do it. But this I like. God can use me to fight evil. I just like that thought. I've done so much sin in my own life. I love the thought that God can take me and can fight against the forces of darkness with me. So he comes and he says this, present your bodies, present you. It's a way of 
talking about you, all that you are mentally, emotionally, every kind of way. Present you. And now he's going to give three modifiers. Do y'all see what I'm doing here, by the way? I'm just walking through this verse. Here's the three modifiers. Living, holy, acceptable. Those two I'm going to put together and I'll tell you why. And then the last is your spiritual service of worship. So now here come the three modifiers. This modifies presenting your body as a living. God doesn't want you dead. He wants you alive. He doesn't want to destroy you. He wants to use you as a living weapon against the kingdoms of darkness. You kind of feel like Luke Skywalker, don't you? Huh? You, you, you kind of feel like that. He wants, to, he wants you alive. He doesn't want you dead. He doesn't want you lame. He doesn't want you injured. He doesn't want you out. He wants to use everything about you to strike out against the kingdom of darkness in the world that we live in and to help build the kingdom of God. He says, you are a living sacrifice. Now, when you stop and think about that, you think about the priest, as, I taught, as we went through the Exodus, would take that uh, sacrifice, put it up on the altar, and it would be burned. Of course, its throat was slit first. It was then, he'd put it up on the altar to be burned up. Now, the, the concept here is not that you present yourself so that you can just be burned up. The concept is you, you present yourself to be useful to God. He says, you are a living, now watch this, holy sacrifice acceptable to God. Now, I join holy and acceptable together for this reason. They are speaking about the same thing. They're they're talking about the sacrifice. It's a holy sacrifice. It's an acceptable sacrifice. Now, we struggle with this whole thing of holiness because the Word of God says, be holy because I, the Lord, your God, am holy. And we struggle with this, but I'm just not holy. We use that so many times to kind of excuse ourselves and say, well, I just can't be holy. I'm not going to be perfect. None of us are going to be perfect this side of heaven. Uh, It's what I'm shooting for. I want to shoot for it. Don't you? I mean, wouldn't you like to have just one day where at the end of the day, the Lord would appear and say, you did it today. You did it today. You lived the way I've designed you to live. Well, none of us are going to make it. (laughs) I just hate to tell you, we're not going to make it because we're still in the flesh. But one day, one day. So the whole concept of holy here means I have dedicated myself to. I am dedicated to living in a way that is pleasing to God. Will I make it perfectly? No. But I'm dedicated. This sacrifice has been dedicated. It's not dedicated to this football team or that football team. It's not dedicated to this place of, you know, recreation or that place. My life is dedicated to Jesus Christ. And it's acceptable. You remember as we looked at those sacrifices in the Old Testament, how God said, listen, for this sacrifice, you bring a bullock, you bring a ram, you bring a lamb, you bring a goat. You know, they didn't walk in there dragging a goose. 
they, they didn't go down there to sacrifice to God. And they said, well, I caught a fox today, so I thought I'd sacrifice that. They didn't do that. They didn't walk, they didn't walk in with all these kinds. They didn't walk in and say, well, this is my neighbor's dog that, you know, or, or, or my cat or something like that. They walked in with the acceptable sacrifice. Sometimes we want to present junk to God. Amen. He wants us. He wants the acceptable sacrifice. Well, what makes me acceptable? Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. He wants you to present you that he has already, do you know, you do know that God sees you already as glorified, right? Have you been told that? Well, let me, let me tell you, God sees you already as holy and glorified. Do you not have a good God? He said, but we know dip, the, the rest of us don't know that about you. <laughs> uh, we, we don't know that. We are all still in this body of flesh, but God sees you. So he, he wants you to come as holy. He sees you that way. Acceptable. Jesus has made you acceptable. He said, I don't feel acceptable. I, I, I preached to preachers in Louisiana this past week, and uh, I, t- I told them, I said, we are all striving to be uh, adequate, you know, Uh, And the fact of the matter is, none of us are adequate. You're not adequate to do this job. I'm not adequate to do this job. Um, God's not interested in your adequacy. He's interested in your obedience. And when we're obedient to him, he takes care of the adequacy issue. He makes you adequate. So he has made you through the blood of Jesus Christ an acceptable sacrifice. I'm going to do what Paul did. I'm going to just say amen myself. Amen. That's a good word. That's a good word right there. We are living, holy, acceptable sacrifice to God. Now watch this. Which is your spiritual service of worship. Now there are a couple of words right there that I want to give you. Uh, If you have the King James, it says, which is your reasonable service. That's okay. The word there is logikos. It can mean reasonable. It can mean spiritual. It's our word logic. It gives us our word logic. This is the logical thing for me to do as a Christian. I'm not to live in immaturity. I'm not to stay bogged down in the same sins. I'm not to be dragged down by the culture and the world. The logical thing for me to do since God has made me holy and acceptable, is to present myself to him as a weapon to be used for his glory. That's the logical thing. And then here comes the second thing. It says here, your spiritual service, your logical service, uh, latria is the word. Uh, The word service there is latria, and it points you back to the priest because the word latria gives us the word liturgy. It's worship. The liturgy in certain churches and denominations is how you worship the Lord. You worship the Lord by reading a liturgy, reading a prayer, saying a prayer, saying certain things. So Paul comes here, and this is what he's saying to us. He's saying the most logical thing you can do to mature, the most logical thing you can do not to waste your Christian life is to mature by presenting yourself holy and acceptable sacrifice 
a living, holy, and acceptable sacrifice to God so that everything in my life becomes worship. So that if I play golf, it is a worship to God and not a day out with the guys. So that if in my marriage I do anything, my marriage is to be an expression of worship to God. So that in my home, the rearing of children is to be a worship of God. So that in my life, everything that I do in work is to be a worship of God. So that I am a priest and I carry out every day in this living body a worship of the living God as if I am presenting to him a sacrifice. I watch so many Christians waste their lives. I really do. I see so many Christians who they pop in and they're out and they're hot and they're cold and they're in and they're out and they're up and they're down. And, you know, and I, it's almost, it almost like watching a tennis match. Here they come, there they go. Here they come, there they go. You know, and it's, it's this thing of, can I grow up in Christ? Can't I mature my life so that every day, everything that I'm doing is an act of worship to God. I'm offering him sacrifice, and I'm the sacrifice. We don't waste our lives that way. I would be willing to bet that there's probably not more than three of you that have ever heard the name Mickey Cohen. Mickey Cohen was um, a gangster. Uh, and if you've ever heard his name, you've heard it in relationship to Billy Graham. Mickey Cohen, by the way, was a Jew. And here's the interesting thing is he was, um, he's a, he's a Kohathite. We just finished talking about these guys. Uh, this is the only tribe we are certain of today, all these thousands of years later, uh, of who they go back. He goes back to Levi. He's a Levite. He's a Kohathite. He's a descendant out of Aaron. He was a gangster. <laughs> he left Cleveland and he went to Chicago. And in his day, he became the most powerful gangster mob uh, boss in, in, uh, in the world, I suppose. And uh, he, from Chicago, had everything in Los Angeles and in Hollywood during the golden age, the late 30s, 40s, 50s, um, and into the early 60s, he, he, was, he, was, he had everything sewed up out there in Hollywood. Nobody could do anything in Hollywood without him. And um, in fact, I'll give you a story. You, you know Desi Arnaz, Ricky Ricardo, Babalu? You know, y'all know who I'm talking about, right? I love Lucy. Well, Desi Arnaz, um, they had put a contract out on him. They were going to put him to death. They were going to kill him. Uh, in fact, Frank Sinatra had his uh, offices over on Desi Lou property. He moved out. He got out because they, they, they were going to kill Desi Arnaz. They were going to kill him because he had put on a television show a, out of his production company called the FBI. And in the FBI, all the bad guys were Italians. And uh, Desi Arnaz never knew that this was going to happen and so he said, what can I do to make y'all happy? Because they went in there and told him, you know, we're just not real happy. He said, what you want me to do? And so Desi Arnaz finally put an FBI agent with an Italian last name. Saved his life. This is the guy who's doing all that. He had a friend in Los Angeles by the name of Bill Jones who was a Christian businessman. He really liked Bill. He had a lot of confidence in Bill. 
And Bill one day started sharing Jesus Christ with him. And so another day at lunch, having shared Christ with him, he said, uh, Mickey, I, I want you to come with me to New York. I've got somebody there that I want you to meet. You've heard of his name, and his name is Billy Graham, because at that time, Billy Graham was hosting uh, a crusade in Madison Square Garden. So Mickey Cohen said, sure, we'll go, let's go. So they took off, they flew to New York, and for three hours, Mickey Cohen sat and talked to Billy Graham. Uh, Bill Jones just knew he was going to, he was going to do it. Billy Graham was going to lead him to the Lord, but he put up so much resistance that at the end of three hours, he walked out and Billy Graham himself felt like, I, I don't know that I'll ever see him again. Uh, I, I don't know that he'll ever make a decision for Christ. Well, that week, Mickey Cohen shows up at the Billy Graham crusade. Now, let me tell you, when you are the biggest mob boss in America, and you're going to a Billy Graham evangelical crusade in Madison Square Garden, the press shows up. And they showed up, and they followed him. And they were, they were calling out to him, hey, are you going to go forward at the invitation? Are you going to respond? Are you going to do what Billy Graham says? Are you going to get born again? And so that night, Mickey Cohen went to the Billy Graham, seeking, open, close to making a decision left the place, never making a decision, got on a plane and flew back to Los Angeles. He went back to his old friends. He went back to his job. He went back to running his business. He went back to all the things that uh, he had been doing. And Bill Jones flies back to Los Angeles, sets up a lunch date with him, and meets him and says, Mickey, you're so close to making a decision. And Mickey Cohen looks at him and says, Bill, you never told me. You never told me. You never told me that I had to give up my friends. You never told me I had to give up my business. You never told me I had to give up what I do for a living. You never told me I had to give up my lifestyle. Mickey Cohen said, I, I don't understand it. There are actors out here in Hollywood who are Christian, but they could be Christian actors, and there are athletes who are Christians, and there are Christian athletes, and there are businessmen who are Christian, and so they're Christian businessmen. Why can't there be a Christian mobster? The fact of the matter is, Regardless if you're an actor or an athlete or a businessman or a gangster, when you come to Christ, you present yourself to him to be what he wants you to be and not what we want to be. That is the point of spiritual Thank you for listening to this recording from Valleydale Church. To find more or to connect with us about what you just heard, check us out at valleydale.org.